Amen. Please be seated. Now take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We are starting today in conjunction with the Christmas season, a study of John's Gospel, one that's going to last us through Christmas. In fact, it's probably going to last us several Christmases. By the time we finish this, some of the children of this church will have graduated high school and gone to college, and some of them will come back from college and they'll say, you're still studying John, and I'll say yes, we haven't gotten it all yet. There are children in the womb who will be walking and talking by the time we finish this book and maybe driving. John is one of four Gospels. Why four? Ultimately, only the Lord knows, but why not just one? It's easy. Some of you are sports fans, and and you're familiar with watching instant replay. So you, you see a play, and you're convinced, for example, you're convinced it was a touchdown. And then you start to see it from other angles. And it's the exact same play. Nothing's different. But from another angle, from a different perspective, you see something a little bit differently. So the pylon cam looks different than the sideline cam, which looks different than the overhead drone cam. There's four Gospels. Each of them was written from a different angle, a different perspective. Matthew emphasizes Jesus' kingship. Luke, his humanity. Mark, his servanthood. And by the way, these are, those three are what we call together the synoptic Gospels. It means to see together. And, and so those are largely the same uh, stories, just from slightly different angles. Um, they were probably written first those three and then perhaps some years later John comes along and he fills in what we could call the gaps he fills in some things that perhaps he believes the church needs to know about and so he wrote the fourth gospel Um, much of the material in John is unique John's the only one that tells us about Jesus turning water into wine or the interaction with Nicodemus Or the Samaritan woman, the woman caught in the act of adultery, the raising of Lazarus, the washing of the disciples' feet, the upper room discourse, the high priestly prayer. Those are unique to John. There's also certain things that are very famous in the Gospels that John leaves out. He doesn't say a word about Jesus' birth or his baptism or his temptation or the transfiguration or Gethsemane. Nothing about the ascension. No sermon on the mount. Now, it's not an oversight on John's part. You've got to remember, all of the Gospels were written with an agenda. They they were written to teach different things with different emphases. And John's going to tell us plainly, and I want you to see this before I even read our sermon text today. I want you to see where John tells us in John chapter 20 what his agenda is. Look with me at John 20, verses 30 and 31. John's saying this so you understand what his whole point is of writing this book. John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And actually, John would go on to say, he did so many things that all the books in all the world would not be able to contain all that he's done. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John's saying, I didn't write this gospel so that you could have intellectual, heady discussions about the Trinity. I didn't write it so that you would know some basic stories about a good teacher, but largely go about your life unchanged. He's saying, I wrote this so that you may believe more and more 
that Jesus is the Son of God and that by knowing him, you may then have life in him. Life that, that is so filled up with joy that overflows from God himself into the depths of your soul and consumes your very existence. That, that's what John is saying here. That's why I wrote this. So you would understand the life-changing power of knowing Jesus Christ. So with that as background, turn with me to John 1. We're going to read just the first five verses We won't get through them today. I'm intending to preach them again next Sunday. But listen to God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of, I think, the greatest scenes in all of literature is an interaction that we see in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. It's an interaction between Lucy, the young child, in the story and Aslan, the Christ figure. Lucy has seen Aslan before, but this time she sees him and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered Aslan. Not because you are, asked Lucy. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What Lewis is describing in a really genius way here is what happens in the Christian life. The more you know Jesus Christ, the more, the greater, the more he expands in your eyes. The more you know him, the greater he gets. You you know, for most of us, as we get older, there were things that we saw as a child that when we grow up, they're not nearly as big as we thought. And so there may be a person that you knew as a child and he just looked like a giant and then you grew up and you realize he wasn't really that tall or a a place you used to go and the room just looked massive and then you go to it as an adult and you think, well, it's really not as big as I thought it was. But Jesus is so unique because as you grow up in the faith, he goes from maybe a story you've heard to one who intrigues you to one who captivates you to one who absolutely ravishes your soul. The more you get to know Jesus, the greater, the bigger, the more glorious he gets. So that the better you know him, the more you want to know about him. That's my hope in spending a couple years in John's gospel, is that this time would expand your vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. John's gospel is sometimes described as the, the eagle because it, it, it's sort of an overhead look at the life of Jesus from a spiritual perspective. It's a heaven's eye view. And I think that as we begin to see Jesus as he is presented to us in John's gospel, he will grow more and more wondrous in our eyes. And I think that's true no matter where you are on your Christian journey. You're going to see a Christ that you have known but you're going to find out he's far greater than you've ever imagined. 
Augustine said this, St. Augustine said this 1700 years ago, the gospel of John is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. Wherever you are in the Christian life, there is something for you in John's gospel. It's never too deep for you, and yet you will never exhaust its depths. There's too much, I think, in these five verses to get through today and so as I mentioned we'll look at it again today but today uh, next week but today all I want to do is highlight four words that I, I jotted down as I was reading through this passage four things that kept popping out to me as I read through it over and over again and then after that we'll come to the Lord's table but those four words are eternality creativity victory and supremacy and if you're using your bulletin those are outlined in the sermon notes page the first is eternality when we think about the other three gospels what did i call them the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke they each started a different point in history so matthew started with a genealogy of jesus going back to abraham so going back about 1800 to 2000 years Luke begins by talking about the birth of John the Baptist, so probably 5 BC or so. Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, so around 25 AD. Where does John start? John starts before time even began. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. Now that, that was that's there in verse 1, it's actually used three times, and all of them are the imperfect tense. You don't have to know this, but it, it, it's the kind of stuff I spend my life looking at. So I'm going to tell you anyways. Imperfect tense means it happened and was ongoing. And so the way we could translate this is, in the beginning, always was the word. The word was always with God, and the word always was God. See, John's point here from the very beginning is there's not a time in which Christ did not exist. Now, that is overwhelming to think about. If, you, if you've ever had a conversation with a child and, and, and the child might ask you, hey, who made me? You say, God did. And the next question, almost inevitably, is going to be, well, who made God? That's a great question because as finite beings, we think in terms of beginnings and there's got to be a regress. There's got to be something that came before that. And so in my case, I came from Robin and Larry Mark and they came from Don and Betty Dorn and Rose and, and, and Ernest Mark and they came from and so on. And some of you can trace it back generations. You can go back to the 15 and 1600s tracing back your family origins. But you know, no matter how far back you can go, no matter how, what you think about the origins of time, no matter when it is, Jesus always is. Not was, Jesus always is. I, I borrow that language from Jesus himself. He's speaking to the Pharisees in, in John chapter 8, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He, he, Jesus has always been. There, there's never been a point where he wasn't. And if we don't, it doesn't matter if we're three years old or 93 years old. Our minds cannot comprehend an eternal being who had no beginning. Now, John doesn't just want us to understand his eternality, but that he is specifically eternal with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Uh, 
he was with God from the beginning. There's a unity, we're going to call it a triunity or a trinity that has existed forever and ever and ever. There's an infinite regress. There was never a beginning to the trinity. The trinity simply has always been. So Jesus is with God, but he is God, John says. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He's God, and yet he can be distinguished from the Father. It's perplexingly profound. He was with God. This is, we're going to see this again and again throughout John's gospel, but there is one God, three persons, three coexistent, three co-eternal persons. See, John wants us to understand that Jesus This baby in the manger that we just sang about in low estate is God. So that all God is, he is. And yet he can be distinguished from God. Now that is mind-boggling, but if you've grown up in Orthodox Christianity, you know that there's one God, three persons. This is not news to you, but it has been unclear at times to portions of the church. This was one of the early major doctrinal conflicts of the, uh, of the early church. Pastor Walton talked about that in Sunday school, but specifically in the fourth century when there were two opposing sides in the church, and the argument was, is Jesus eternal or is he a created being? Has he always been or was there a point where he was not, where he didn't exist yet? And and the side that taught what we believe is Orthodox Christianity, it's what the Bible teaches, was led by a man named Athanasius who had an amazing line. He said, there never was a time when Christ was not. There's never been a point in which Christ did not exist. That was contrary to Arius. Arius taught that Jesus at one point did not exist and was a created being. Now he taught that he was a great created being. But he was created nonetheless. Now, one of the legends that's been passed down for 1,700 years is that during that debate, as Arius was advocating for the created nature of Jesus Christ, St. Nicholas of Myra, whom we associate with Christmas today, got irritated with his heresy and actually punched Arius in the face. And I have no idea if that's true, but if we did that more often, we'd have great crowds at Presbytery meetings, wouldn't we? John's gospel is critical in grasping the Trinity, the eternality of Jesus Christ. We have to be able to explain that some way. And the way that scripture explains that is that there is one God, three persons. Now, this concept that John is going to teach is so important that Martin Luther, right or wrong, Luther said, if all the Bible disappeared, if it were all taken away except for John and Romans, Christianity could survive. There would be enough to know biblical Christianity. That's how vital John is to understanding the character of God. But we need to look at this not as a theological experiment where we're sort of putting God under a microscope and trying to dissect him, but a beautiful picture of life within the Trinity. See, we serve a God who is beautiful. Verse 2, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, he was with God in the beginning. That, that word, the Greek there for with, it's really face-to-face. It's speaking of intimacy of relationship. And we're going to see that verse clearly, uh, more clearly in verse 18. Look there. No one has ever seen God, 
the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That language, at the Father's side, we could translate that, who is in the Father's bosom. It's speaking of the perfect intimacy within the Trinity. You and I, in the very best of human relationships, there are moments, there are occasions where we might be with somebody and we think to ourselves, you know, this person, this person really gets me. You know, we, we're, we're, and sometimes we'd call that bosom buddies, but you might look at somebody and say, this person really gets me. It may be my spouse, it may be a best friend, it may be a family member, but this person really gets me. Oftentimes those are short-lived, those moments, because we don't always really get each other. But from eternity past, the Father and the Son have had that kind of perfect intimacy. And so imagine those moments that you have that and multiply it times a billion for all eternity. And that is the joy the Father and the Son take in each other. And so the emphasis in John's gospel is not just the eternality of Christ, that he's always existed, but that he has always existed with unimaginable joy in fellowship with the Father. So that's the eternality of Christ. We'll be touching on this again, Lord willing, in weeks ahead. But second thing I want you to see is the creativity of Christ. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus created all things in shared creative activity with his Father. Now, this is not the only place that the New Testament makes that assertion. We, we looked at it in Sunday school, but look over at Colossians 1 for a moment. This is unmistakably clear, lest we be confused. Colossians 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I don't think John here or Paul in Colossians is simply just trying to make sure Jesus gets credit for what he's done. He's driving home a point here, and that is, if you wanted to emphasize that somebody is God, where would you start? You'd call him God, like John did in verse 1, and then in verse 3, you would say everything that's been created was created by him. Everything that exists. Now, what's implicit in that is that he is not created, because he is the creator of all things. He, he's emphasizing the, the divine creativity of Christ. And now he does it in an interesting way. He calls him the Word. In Greek, that's logos. There's a lot of discussion about Greek philosophical origins of that term, particularly a, a philosopher named Philo used that term about a thousand times in his writings, but he never actually explained what the logos was. It was sort of an impersonal power behind the universe. I don't think that's where John's going here. Look at the very beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning, where does that make your mind go? It goes to Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John wants you to go back to the beginning. He wants you to go back to the book of Genesis. And what happens in Genesis? God is creating. And how's he doing it? By his word. John is saying here, Jesus is God in action. Jesus is God made visible. 
the creative power of the Lord Jesus Christ is utterly awesome. The earth is a big place, 197 million square miles. But scientists estimate that the sun is 109 times bigger than the diameter of the earth. The sun's a massive star, exponentially larger than the earth. But you know, it's, it's one of only about 100 million stars in the galaxy. And the latest estimate from the Hubble telescope is that there are 200 billion galaxies in space. The sun is just a, a blip. Why are you telling us all this? You're not an astronomer. I know, I actually had to look up the difference between astrology and astronomy today because I can never remember which one's which. But I'm telling you this because it matters. All things were made through him. Jesus created it all. Not only that, but he created every molecule in all of those stars. And he upholds every one of them every moment of the day. You can look up at the stars this evening and think, isn't it incredible that Jesus not only created everything that I'm looking at, but this very second, he is upholding it by the word of his power. There's no such thing as mother nature. There's no such thing as chance or coincidence or luck that put all of these things in place. It is the sovereignty of Jesus Christ on display that we might be in awe of him. It's all created by him. It's all upheld by him. And dear ones, it's the same with you. He created you and he is upholding you every moment of every day. I, you sometimes hear an athlete on TV say, I don't know where I'd be without God. And I always think, well, you wouldn't be without God. He wouldn't exist. He made you. He upholds you. If for one second he would cease to be, you would cease to be. Let me speak for a moment to those of you who do not trust in the Lord Jesus. And there are some here. You are rejecting the very one who made you and sustains your every breath. The words you use to deny him, you are utterly reliant upon him for those words. If you had your wish and he were to cease to exist, so would you. Not only that, but to reject Jesus is to reject any way of making sense of this world. Because you see, as the word, as John's talking about him here, Jesus is not only the creative power of God, but he's the communicative power of God. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above shows his handiwork. God desires to reveal himself to us. And there are certain things we can see in nature about God. But it's only so much. Our sinful minds can't receive it all. And so what do we need? We need the word. If we reject Jesus Christ as he is in the scriptures, we give up any chance of making sense of this world. It is self-destructive to, self to ignore the words of the one who created you. All right, so we've determined the creative activity of Jesus. But we need to ask a question, and that is why? Why did this self-sufficient God, who was perfectly blessed within the Trinity, 
create man, I have heard it taught that he was lonely. That is heresy. God is perfectly self-existent. He does not need anything. We are needy people. God is not a needy God. Look at Proverbs 8 for a moment. I want you to see just a quick snapshot of the intra-Trinitarian thought behind creation. And I know Proverbs is not normally the place we would go to see something like that. Proverbs 8, starting at verse 27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. This gives us a great clue as to why we were created. Not because of some need in God, but because such extraordinary, extraordinary intra-triune joy needs to be shared. It is, God made us in a sense to be mirrors of the joy of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that they have had from eternity past. And such soul-entrenching, satisfying joy cannot be contained. It overflows because of what it is. And I think that everyone in this room and everyone in this world knows that. Regardless of what they profess to believe, every person, to some degree, is seeking meaning in life and seeking happiness. We're seeking relationships. And the cry of every heart is that there is some transcendent joy that I am hoping to find, but I have not yet encountered in this world. What is it? What is it that can make people who have everything be the most miserable people in the world? C.S. Lewis says it really, really well. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Uh, the joy that you crave, even if you are an unbeliever, even if you are an atheist, the joy that you crave is the joy that you were created for of knowing God and enjoying him forever. All right, well, if we were made for such joy, if that's why we were created, why don't we all experience it all the time? Is there some shortcoming in the creator? No, the problem is, is sin, we tend to think of sin in terms of right versus wrong, and that's absolutely true. But really, sin is anything that draws our hearts and our minds and our affections away from Jesus Christ. That's always been Satan's goal, to take our eyes off of God and place them on ourselves and on our stuff. Remember the first lie in the garden. God says, the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Satan says, uh-uh, you're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. Now, Adam and Eve should have said, be like him. We are like him. He, he's made us the crown jewel of creation. But they fell for the lie, and they sought happiness in the creation rather than the creator. 
And that's, the hu- that's where all human tragedies start, by thinking that something other than God can satisfy us. Someone other than Christ can satisfy us. How could it be that anything in the creation could satisfy us more than the presence of the creator? Who knows how we work better than the one who created us? Charles Steinmetz was a brilliant uh, inventor and engineer, and he was a friend of Henry Ford. And it was said that Steinmetz could build an entire engine in his mind, and then if something broke, he could diagnose it in his mind and fix it in just a moment. One day, the assembly line at Ford had a problem. Production halted. It cost Ford thousands of dollars every hour. And they couldn't fix it, so they called in Steinmetz. He tinkered with it for just a couple of minutes, turned a switch, and production resumed. Easy enough, right? Well, a few days later, Ford received a bill from Steinmetz in the amount of $10,000. And Henry wrote a note to his friend Charlie saying, don't you think your bill's a little bit steep for a few moments of tinkering? And Steinmetz sent him back a revised bill, tinkering $10, knowing where to tinker (laughs) $9,990. See, as Christians, we look to Christ because he's the only one who knows how we work. He's the only one that can make sense out of this world. Why? Because he's the creator. And he's spoken to us in his word. And dear ones, if you reject his word or if you are ignorant of his word, you are choosing to walk through life blindly. Creativity. Third, I want you to see victory. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I heard several years ago of a pastor in our community who taught publicly that when Jesus died on the cross, he died disillusioned and as a failure. Now that is an absolutely demonic statement. But he wasn't the first to say that. You can imagine as early Christians went around proclaiming the hope that they have in Jesus Christ, people would look at them, especially in the Jewish community, and say, If he's the Messiah we've been waiting for, then why don't more people believe in him? And why don't the best and the brightest believe in him? You know, you look around at the early bands of disciples, they weren't the best and the brightest. They weren't very bright at all in a lot of cases. It was tax collectors and prostitutes. It was fishermen. Why didn't the rest believe? Were they too smart to believe in things like a virgin birth and a resurrection from the dead? John answers that question in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. What's the darkness of this world? It's the sin that I just spoke of that settles on us like a dark fog that disorients the human mind and sets our hearts in rebellion against our creator. This is the human condition. Naturally speaking, we are born into darkness. We're naturally ignorant of the truth and we stumble about all the time and we're, we're always stubbing our spiritual toes because we have no idea where we're going. And so why didn't the brilliant minds of the Jewish world believe? Why don't the brilliant, mind, brilliant minds of our world believe today? Because even the most brilliant of minds is simply navigating the darkness like you and I are. Natural intelligence isn't enough to overcome darkness. Christ must shine the light of life into the darkness of our hearts. Robert Louis Stevenson 
best known for his adventure story, Treasure Island, was a sickly child. And one evening he was looking out the window, mesmerized as he watched an old lamplighter walking corner by corner, block by block, lighting each streetlight along his route. And Robert exclaimed, look, there's a man poking holes in darkness. That's what Jesus came to do, to poke holes into darkness. Remember when Jesus was upon the cross, how darkness covered the whole earth. Remember how he cried out from the cross, longing to see the light of his father's face, but not seeing anything but an abyss of darkness and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was going on there? That the light of the world experienced utter darkness. Well, Jesus entered into our darkness. He went into the darkness of sin and death and poked holes in it, bringing into it the light of the gospel. You know, the most famous benediction in the Bible, I think, is number six, and you've probably heard it before, even if you don't know it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The shining, that brilliance of the face of the Father, Jesus had known it from eternity past, but upon the cross, he only saw darkness. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin. The curse that we deserve was upon him. And so instead of that great benediction that had been his for all eternity, what did Jesus hear from the cross? May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. Jesus stepped into the darkness of sin to rescue us and bring us into the light of the face of God, to bring us into the joy that the Trinity had enjoyed from all eternity. The cross for Jesus was not defeat, it was victory. It was victory because in it he redeemed his people and restored us to fellowship with himself and his Father through the Spirit. And it's available to all who look to him. Lucy Shaw captured this well in her poem, Mary's Song. Older than eternity, now he is new. Caught that I may be free. Blind in my womb to know my darkness ended. Brought to this birth for me to be newborn. And for, me to be, uh, for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. This is the victory that's ours in Jesus Christ. It's an eternal cosmic, cosmic victory that he has brought all of his people out of darkness and into light. He has utterly transformed us by the power of the gospel so that we not only believe upon him, but we believe more and more and more upon him. And sometimes as Christians, we can be guilty of trivializing Jesus, teaching him just, uh, treating him just as a good teacher, Someone to give us 10 steps towards a better life or five tips for a happy marriage. We can get bent out of shape when store clerks don't say Merry Christmas. We can care more about the politics of our world than the promise of the coming kingdom. We make Christ trivial when we go through life looking for anything to satisfy our souls apart from him. But Christ has said what? 
I have come that they would have life and have it abundantly. That's what his victory accomplished. And all who trust in him receive life in him. Eternal life. Lasting life. Remember, that's what John says the purpose of his gospel is. That you may have life in his name. So, third thing's victory. Fourth, supremacy. What John is saying and what biblical Christianity is conveying is that the baby in the manger in Bethlehem is none other than the eternal Son of God incarnate. I hope you realize this. Pastor Walton said it in Sunday school. I'm going to reiterate it. Any iteration of Christianity, if it denies the humanity or the divinity of Christ, is false teaching. Both are essential to our salvation. Christianity that denies either the humanity or the divinity of Christ is not Christianity at all. Because it's in the humanity and the divinity of Christ that we see his supremacy. Uh, There are C.S. Lewis fans. I'm actually not the biggest C.S. Lewis fans, but there are many in this room, and I'm making you happy today. There's another great line from Lucy in The Last Battle where she's just, this is amazing, this is such a loaded line. She says, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Isn't that amazing? A stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. What an incredible thought that the creator could enter into the creation. The eternal could become finite. The one who appeared to be defeated by darkness would burst forth in resurrection power, shining his light to the ends of the earth. And I said earlier, John's probably not going to teach you anything you don't already know. You, you may learn an occasional new theological term, or you might uh, see some story you hadn't thought about since childhood. But he's going to teach you what you know much, much more profoundly. See, you and I need to realize that no matter how wonderful, how how glorious Jesus is in our eyes, he is infinitely more glorious than you or I can imagine. He, He is, there is nothing that can compare to him, nothing that can come close. He is supreme over all things. And so what I hope you'll see as we work through this study is that he is infinitely greater and infinitely above everything else in this world. We're going to encounter a Jesus who doesn't fit neatly in a box. He doesn't accommodate the the air of our culture. He he doesn't accommodate our, 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 our empty desires. He isn't a God who is content for you to give an hour a week of attention to an otherwise lukewarm, half hearted Christian life. He isn't a God who wants to be an armchair theologian so that you can go on the internet and argue theology. This is real flesh and blood reality. This is the stuff at the heart of biblical Christianity. This is the stuff that martyrs 2,000 years ago were willing to die for. And even some of our brothers and sisters around the world are dying for today. This is gospel truth. And we're going to come to some some mind-blowing things in John's gospel. And we're not going to understand them, but we're going to believe them. We're going to believe every word of it. We're going to read about him turning water into wine. Pastor, you don't really believe that happened, actually, do you? There's got to be some earthly explanation for it. No, it happened. I don't know how he did it. It doesn't matter if I understand it. Pastor, you don't believe in, in, a, in Jesus healing blind and lame and deaf people. I don't understand it, but I believe it. 
feeding 5,000 people with a little bit of fish and loaves have no idea how it happened. And it doesn't matter. In, in fact, a God whom a peon like me could understand isn't a God worth knowing. As we come to the supremacy of Christ in John's gospel, we realize how far above us he is, how exponentially great he is, far above anything else in this world. Pastor, do you believe it? Every single word of it. And you seem like a moderately intelligent guy sometimes, Pastor. How can you believe that? Because it's the word made flesh. We can't understand it all. That's not our job. Our job is to believe it and to adore him. That's what this book will do if we read it by faith and we seek to really know the one who is the word. What he does is that he makes the word alive and he jumps off the pages to animate our lives. So that the truths on the pages of the gospel become the truths that that are written over every day for the balance of our lives. I have a lot of conversations with people and a lot of them come back to heaven. I am amazed how often people who don't know God at all assume they will go to heaven. But they have a fundamental misunderstanding about heaven. Heaven is not simply good food and beautiful scenery and, and endless fun. Heaven is the pure, undiluted presence of Jesus Christ every day in heaven. We're going to look upon him and we're going to go, hey, did you see that? He's even better than we thought he was. He is amazing. I thought he was great yesterday. But he's infinitely greater than we saw. And we get to do that forever and ever and ever and ever. And because he's an infinite being, we will never run out of curriculum. We will always be increasingly in awe of him. But I have to wonder why people who have not wanted God in their lives think that dying will change all of that and that they will enter into the presence of a God they hated. If they had no interest in knowing Christ in this life, and this is true for you if you are not a Christian, if you have no interest in knowing Christ in this life, heaven makes no sense at all. Why would you want to be there if there's a God that you hated? If there's a God that you refuse to serve in this life, Heaven is for those who trusted in Christ, not by anything we've done, but by his own grace given to us. This is the Jesus you need, not some inflatable lawn decoration you bring out once a year at Christmas. You need the one who hung the heavens and earth in place and hung on the cross in your place. That's what John says this book is about. As you read this book by faith, you meet the word made flesh, and he goes from words on a page to the truths of your life. And he captivates our hearts so that knowing him becomes our greatest desire for this world and the next. So let's go back to Lucy, talking to Aslan. May we always have our vision of the Lord Jesus Christ elevated day by day by day, through the study of his word, so that, as Aslan said to Lucy, every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's what happens when you walk with Jesus Christ. How do we apply this text? Let me ask you first, are you growing? In our physical bodies, we grow for a time and then we stop. Some of us stop growing sooner than others where we stop growing vertically and we start growing horizontally. 
But spiritually speaking, God has designed new life so that we never stop growing. Uh, So that we're always seeing more and more of who Jesus is and what he's done. You know, there ought to be, as you grow as a Christian, greater commitment to the spiritual disciplines because they lead to greater intimacy with him. There ought to be a greater sense of understanding of theology because it leads to awe of him. There ought to be a renewal of your mind by the word so that the words of the Lord Jesus become the words that animate your life. That's what it is to grow as a Christian. Are are you growing? We've had babies born in this room lately and, and after a week or a month you go back to the doctor and the doctor the first thing he wants to know is is this child growing and so let me ask you dear ones are you growing? Well, how do I know if I'm growing? Is Jesus more captivating to you than he was a month ago or a year ago or when you came to Saving Faith? Because every year you grow, he grows bigger. If you you can't say that, deal with that now. My guess is you've been stunted by a hunger for things that cannot satisfy, feeding on things that, that... can't nourish you. You need to feed upon him. And we're going to talk about that more in a few minutes when we come to the table. The second application is parents, teach this stuff to your children. These five verses are weighty stuff. You you remember that? I always think about this Far Side cartoon. Do you remember Far Side? It, It was a cute little cartoon, but a kid in class raises his hand and says, teacher, may I be excused? My brain is full. And I think about that with passages like this. But these are the kind of things our brains were created to know. The God who made us, made us to know and enjoy him. Parents, disciple your children in these truths. Many churches have decided, children, they don't need these kind of things yet. We're just going to give them coloring pages on Sunday. Not acknowledging the reality that the other six days of the week, they are dealing with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Your children need to know these things. They may not totally understand them now. I don't totally understand them now. But give your children big truths so that one day they can grow up into them rather than small truths that they will outgrow in a couple years. Your children need meat. They need to know about the Trinity. The God who chose them, the Son who redeemed them, the Spirit who gave them new birth. They need to know about how the glory of God pierced through the darkness of this world and how their purpose as boys and girls is to reflect that glory to the ends of the earth. They need to be mature disciples so that as they get older, they can make mature disciples. In other words, God's desire for families, even the young families in this room, is that you be a trinity displaying scripture-saturated, God-glorifying, disciple-making little church in your homes. Parents, train your children in these things. Let's pray together. Lord our God, these are glorious truths, and we confess that we do not comprehend them, but we love them, we believe them, and we bet our lives upon them. Thank you for the truths of the incarnation of the gospel, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, regeneration, sanctification, glorification, all these things that seem like big words that may make our minds 
overwhelmed at times, and yet they are the very truths for which our minds were created. Give us a hunger to see and to know these things so that as we grow, Jesus might become bigger and bigger.